just a small town spike Stuck at home feeling so confined She drafted midnight cue going anywhere Just a nice Johnny Trapped inside looking scrawny He drafted midnight cube going It's Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, Midnight Cube Menace Maddox. Hi, Anthony. Well, hardly a menace, but uh, how's it going? It's fine. I was in bed last night having trouble sleeping, as I do occasionally, my, my mind racing as it, as it tends to do. And, you know, I was paged around all my dumb social media apps and just, you know, frittering away my life, doom scrolling. And I noticed there was uh, some people on the voice chat in our Discord channel for our local playgroup right around midnight. Turns out you had just fired a cube draft at midnight know, been, and we're beginning to, get to play a draft your games. going on the Discord for, for all week. And it turns out <laughs> Friday at midnight was the first time people can actually get, get together. <laughs> So I was in bed already, you know, my beautiful wife asleep uh, next to me, but I, I did hop in the voice chat just to listen and watch a stream for a little while and see some of those games. It seemed like people had been drinking a little bit. It's possible. You know, it's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a rough week, this to is say the worst. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to encourage anybody to, uh, to drink as a means of escape, but certainly no, of course one not. might understand why, why some people might be, uh, be having a little extra drink on Friday this week. Do you think there's a balmer peak for magic? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's the same thing. Just getting a little bit of, uh, loosening yourself up a little bit can, can certainly help you approach a, uh, creative problems in a different way. For those not in the know, the supposed balmer peak refers to, it comes from an XKCD article, correct? Or XKCD comic originally? Uh, I don't know if that's, that, there, it's definitely a part of a comic, which is hilarious. I mean, I love XKCD. I'm not sure if that was actually the original source. I'll figure it out. Either way, it uh, refers to the idea that if you're just a little bit drunk as a software engineer, you actually are more productive than if you are totally sober. And of course, if you go a little too far, then you, uh, you overshoot it and you're back to being unproductive. And that, that sweet spot is the Balmer Peak. That's where you really want to aim to be. This has definitely not been my experience with programming, though. No, I, th- I think the joke is supposed to be that it benefits your productivity to not think super hard about everything and to be overly concerned about forwards compatibility and documentation and all the sort of good best practices in software development because that can actually like hinder productivity sometimes you get a little bit caught in your own head i think that's the idea behind it but uh but no it has not been my experience either not that i'm a a huge drinker i guess i am kind of the the marshal of this show because marshall's not a big drinker either i'm also taller than you i mean we really are just marshall and lsv but you know the dark versions I don't know why you keep saying uh, that we're the dark versions. Oh, because our arch enemies. You can't, you can't just think, be like them. Uh, sure, but why can't LSV be dark LSV? Because it, it's named him. He's the dark Anthony, if you want to go that way. But he's obviously the regular LSV. That's who he is. Yeah, that's what you think. If you look around the room and you don't see an evil twin, you're the evil twin. Turns out. We were playing a game of Commander this week, and one of the players at the table was like, I can't figure out who the threat is. And sure enough, I was like, look around the table. If you don't see the threat, it's you. (laughs) You the threat, buddy. That's how this works. On this week's episode of Lucky Paper Radio, we're going to be doing our first ever, I think, right? Our first ever podcast follow-up copyright John Syracusa. We're going to be following up a little bit from our conversation last week. Last week, we intended to talk about Anthony's multiplayer cube, and we ended up down a long rabbit hole talking about how 
the psychotrope of the spike relates to cube design. And I was glad we had that conversation. I thought it was really productive. And if you haven't heard that episode, I'd recommend going back and checking it out. But we did end up talking about some ideas that are very near and dear to my heart and I feel strongly about. And we talked about them without me doing any kind of preparation. And so I wanted to like maybe summarize that conversation a little more cleanly. And then we're going to do a first look at some of the call time spoilers and the mechanics specifically from call time and weigh in on what we think about those. This is the plan. Yeah, we'll see if we stick to it. It's true. We could end up talking about something entirely different. We make no promises here at Lucky Paper Radio uh, Incorporated. We begin every episode, though, with a pack one, pick one from a listener-submitted cube. This week, our pack one, pick one comes to us from listener Vivanter, who has a cube, Anthony, that is entirely one-drops. This is, a, this is a cube stipulation I have seen before, and I think is a very cool limitation. So this is Vaunter's one-drop cube that I will include a link to in the show notes. Do you have any preliminary thoughts going in, Anthony? Uh, I mean, I guess aggressive decks are going to be pretty favored, pretty common, because we're going to have all these cheap cards. But beyond that, I think this is going to be a uh, wild pack. So Vivanter's cube is a 288-card cube, and it is drafted in packs of 12 as opposed to 15. And then, Anthony, we are going to build, apparently, a deck with a 30-card minimum size as opposed to 40-card. I think I'm going to be looking for mana sinks or, or you know, just other ways to sort of mitigate the, uh, the downside of just having only one drops. I will read the pack, and then Anthony will tell us what he's looking at. The pack is Tortured Existence... Fungal Infection, Plagued Rasalka, Stormscape Apprentice, Gutshot, Lonely Sandbar, Wingcrafter, Reef Shaman, Ponder, Vendetta, Swarm Shambler, and Flourishing Fox. A lot of one drops, Anthony. What are the ones that are in consideration for you? It's funny, even the Lonely Sandbar kind of looks like a uh, one drop here. I mean, tap lands are one drops. Hot take. Well, that or you cycle it. Also true. All right. Am I totally wild? I mean, Flourishing Fox looks great. If if the cube has much cycling in it, then I would definitely be excited about that. But I'm, I'm not confident that is the case. Would it be wild if I said Fungal Infection? I don't think so. I mean, Fungal Infection gives target creature minus one, minus one, and you create a one, one green sapperling creature token for a single black mana at instant speed. And I think the first thing to note about this pack, I mean, we're talking about a one drop cube. I... I'm seeing already a lot of one toughness creatures in this pack, and I would expect a lot of the creatures to have one toughness because they only cost one mana. So cards like Fungal Infection and Gutshot kind of read to me like almost hard removal spells in this environment, which I think makes them quite good. And Fungal Infection also giving you a 1-1. If a 1-1 is kind of the going rate for a creature in this environment, it doesn't seem all bad at all. It's kind of just like a one mana Ravenous Chupacabra with Flash. Yeah, there you go. That's a pretty good summary. Is that card you think in the lead for you? Is there anything else that you think is in contention? So I like the Fungal Infection. I also like Swarm uh, Shambler. Uh, Swarm Shambler, um, because it is a mana sink, it lets you, it's sort of a chronomaton. It's a 1-1 that you can pay one and tap it to put another counter on it. And then it's got some more text, which I think is just gravy. Uh, yeah, I think I like the Shambler a little bit more than Fungal Infection. Um, but I think starting with either of those, or Gutshot, or Ponder... I think really this is this pack could go anyway. We're kind of in the same area. I, I will say that, you know, Ponder stands out in this pack as a card that is powerful in many other magic formats. Many people that play very powerful cubes play Ponder. It's very, very good in Legacy and Vintage to the point of being banned and whatnot. So that card obviously I think stands out here a little bit. I do think that in general... I would be much lower on any kind of one-mana cantrip in an environment like this because I think in more powerful environments, what the one-mana cantrips do so well is fill out parts of your curve and allow you to spend your mana on almost every turn of the game at almost every point advancing your game plan, right? Like if you're playing a control deck in a legacy or vintage cube, you don't have much you're going to do on turn one because your cards are going to be primarily reactive instead of proactive, and there are very few mana rocks you can play on turn one reasonably. So, like, what could you possibly do to advance your game plan on turn one? Well, you could play a ponder and set up your future draws to make sure that your future turns go well. And I think that's one of the reasons that one mana cantrips and card selection do perform really, really well uh, in, in other environments. But 
But here, given that everything costs one mana, I can cast any spell of this entire cube on turn one. I would assume there could be some spells in this cube that are like, you know, X in a color, which would technically be a one drop. But, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to cast for X equals zero. But for the most part, like, I'm going to have the choice of whatever I want to cast on turn one. And a lot of these things are going to affect the board and pressure my opponent. So I don't think I want to take time off here to be just doing card selection is my sort of impression with Ponder. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think that's a very, a very concise argument. Swarm Shambler, you mentioned, this is the other one that stood out to me. It's uh, it's a single green mana for a 0-0 that enters the battlefield with a plus one, plus one counter on it. Uh, whenever a creature you control with a plus one, plus one counter on it becomes the target of a spell an opponent controls, you create a 1-1 one, one green insect creature token, and you can pay one and tap it to put a plus one, plus one counter on it. So it will come down on one, as everything in this cube will, and will grow slowly over the game if you're able to tap it every turn and just keep making it bigger. And then if it ever becomes the target of a spell or ability, you get to make a, you know insect creature token, which is which is good. You get something out of it, even if it gets removed. So I agree that is, I think, one of the best cards in this pack, but I am pretty solidly on Gutshot. Gutshot is a, a red Phyrexian mana, so either a red mana or two life to deal one damage, target creature or player at instant speed. And the fact that this is effectively colorless, I mean, obviously if I'm in a red deck, it's a tiny bit nicer because I can choose to pay mana instead of life. But the fact that it's a colorless card and there are no other colorless cards in this pack uh, is is very relevant to me. And I also think this effect is probably just kind of nuts in this environment. One damage is going to kill a lot of threats and doing it for zero mana at instant speed, I think is going to be really, really, really strong. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think you're probably right. That's probably the the optimal pick. But if I'm honest with myself, I think I would still be taking the Shambler. Yeah. Those are the cards I'm looking at. I, I It seems like a very interesting cube. I have always wanted to play one of these one-drop environments. There are a couple other of mana sinky things in this in this pack, like Stormscape Apprentice does stand out a little bit as a, a tapper in blue if you're playing blue-white. But the fact that I need to be in two colors for that to really do anything other than be a one mana one one is not super appealing to me which is why i'm kind of low on that and then i could see tortured existence maybe getting there like if you do have really valuable creatures i mean the fact that this environment is all one drops doesn't necessarily mean that aggro is going to be preferred right like in an aggro mirror what you often want to do is go slower and bigger than your opponent because you're both playing this tempo game and if you're both just trying to play the tempo game you at some point have to say, well, I'm just going to stop fighting you on that axis. I'm going to start fighting you on this other axis your deck isn't paying attention to, which is this value axis. And with just a few bigger creatures and a little more, I don't, one more two for one or something, I can go bigger than you and uh, you know win in a sort of grindy way. This could be, I mean, it's entirely possible to have a cube full of one drops that is just very, very, very grindy games because everyone's got one drops. And so you're going to attack your one one into their one one, like, or not. And the games could just kind of grind to a halt very quickly. So I'm not operating under the assumption that aggro is going to be strong, and so something like Tortured Existence could be very good here. I'd have to have it proven to me a little bit first, but it's the other crap that jumped out to me as a as a mana sink. Um, tortured Existence is just a black for a black enchantment, and you can pay a black, discard a creature card to return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand, which means you can pitch less relevant things to continually get back your most relevant things, which can sometimes work out. Yeah, I think the biggest drawback of it to me is just that, you know, you're down a card before you actually get to start swapping creatures. So it's not actually generating card advantage in itself. Um, and right. I think this is an environment where card advantage is going to matter a lot. You're just playing all these extremely cheap things. And it really, your cards have to do something. So yeah, I'm just looking through the list. I'm not convinced that it's going to be easy to generate a lot of value, but I could be wrong. I'm not sure either, but really the the value of something like Tortured Existence, I think, would end up depending on whether or not you had some creatures that were much more important to your strategy than others. Right. The more your creatures are interchangeable, the more that card just does nothing. It puts you down a card for basically no value. But if you have really high value stuff that's worth getting back, then, you know, in a long game, it can kind of grind things out. All right. I am on Gutshot. Anthony is on Swarm Shambler. Thank you, Vivanter, for sending in your all one-drop cube list. I would love to play one of these cubes someday. I think the one-drop cube idea is very cool. You can have your cube feature on Lucky Paper Radio if you want. Just send us a link to mail at luckypaper.co. Make sure to include how you want to be credited, include your pronouns, and we will do it on the show sometime. All right, Anthony. Follow-up from last week's episode. So... We ended up, like I said, going going a little bit down the rabbit hole talking about what it means to be a cube spike, if such a thing can even possibly exist. And I think we touched on some really important ideas that 
were maybe not structured in a super great way because we didn't take notes for the episode, didn't prepare for it. And so I just kind of wanted to do a quick rundown of what we talked about and maybe you could uh, you know, call out things that I'm not mentioning that you think are also important. All right, go for it. So I think the biggest takeaway from our conversation, I think, is that the, the spike mentality that most of us that play Magic are familiar with that applies to constructed and retail limited doesn't really apply to cube design because when you're designing a cube, you are designing the environment. You're not trying to break it the same way that you are trying to find the best deck in modern or find the best draft strategy in a limited environment. You're trying to create the environment itself. And I think a lot of times people think that what it means to be a spike in cube design is to like design the most powerful cube or power max something. And that was the first kind of myth I wanted to dispel. Yeah, I would just say the way that you evaluate cards can be different. A card is better in constructed because it's more powerful and you want to include it in your in your deck, but including a card, a more powerful card in a cube isn't really making a deck better. It's making all decks equally better. So there's not really a way to optimize it in the same way in terms of a power level. Right. What you're optimizing for is your values as it applies to the game, not a objective sense of power level because such a thing is not really possible to measure. And so I think a lot of the kind of spiky heuristics, sometimes people put too much emphasis on them because they are used to talking about magic in other contexts. Because we have to be honest and admit that Cube is a relatively niche community. We are a very small part of magic in a broader sense. There are many more conversations going on at any given time about retail limited or about some constructed meta And those conversations have a pattern to them. There's a certain way people talk about cards that oftentimes gets inherited in the cube world and not necessarily to the benefit of our discussions. You know, saying things like, you know, this card is bad or this card, you know, is is overrated or, uh, you know, undercosted or something like all of these things assume a context that is not present in cube and has to be established. Right. The next thing I wanted to get across is that Being skilled at card evaluation specifically does not equate to any kind of skill at cube design. We could discuss whether or not one can be skilled at cube design. I would say you could be, and and what what skill in cube design would manifest as is the ability to set a goal for yourself and then create an environment that realizes that goal, right? Like you are skilled in cube design if you say, I want to make a cube that embodies these aspects of the game or encourages this type of gameplay, and you can create a cube that succeeds in doing that. And that's the only thing we could possibly call skill to cube design. And being good at card evaluation, strictly from a spike perspective, doesn't really necessarily help you in that pursuit. This one I'll push back on a little bit. Uh, I do think card evaluation is actually extremely important as a cube designer. Not in that you want to be able to evaluate which are the best cards so you can put them in your cube, but... Any other goals you might have, like trying to get a certain play pattern or have, you know, a diverse set of draftable decks, all of those you kind of can't do if you don't have uh, reasonable card evaluation skills. Right. So this is my next point, which is kind of Uh a two-parter, was that we said this on the previous episode, but I did want to underline it, which is that cube can be anything to anybody. And you can make a cube based on any stipulation or goal you want. You can make a cube of your favorite art. You can make a cube of all the goofiest magic cards in history. We have a friend that made a cube that's just all the cards that he thinks leads to the most miserable gameplay imaginable, which is a cool goal to have. You can do anything you want and call it cube. And that's a lot of the beauty of what we do. But even if you don't consider yourself a spike, I do think that the discipline of designing a cube somewhat requires putting all of your decisions through a spiky lens because that is the lens you have to assume your players are going to approach your environment with because it's the only one that has any sense of... Objectivity is a, is a tricky term, but it's the only lens that has a shared goal. Like, again, people have their own personal biases for whatever reason. They might overvalue a card because they play it in constructed or because they got beat by it last time they drafted. And you can't really design with those things in mind because they're somewhat arbitrary. You don't know how people are going to evaluate cards in that way, what kind of biases they're subject to. But you can design to the idea of someone trying to draft optimally and focus on winning at all costs and what decisions would would benefit those players. And so even if you are not a spiky person, even if winning is not a thing you care most about playing Magic, unless you have an entire playgroup that is built of people that are just like you that uh, don't have any spiky inclinations either, I think it would benefit basically all cube designers to 
strive to think about their cube in a spiky lens and think about card evaluation, even though I don't think that is, that's what makes a good cube designer. I think it is a, a, a skill that will benefit everybody, though. I'll disagree with this point a little bit as well, I think. You, you know, you're saying put things through a spiky lens, but I think what you mean is, like, putting yourself in the shoes of a spiky player. And I also don't know, like, I think a lot of cube designers, they are just designing a cube for their local playgroup, for their friends. You know, that's largely who we play with as well, is, is our, our local group. And we do actually have the opportunity to, to know more about our players. And I definitely include cards in my own cube where it's like, well, this is kind of here because I know it appeals to a, a certain individual in our group. And, and I think that's reasonable as well. So you're, even though you're saying, like, there's not another objective measure... I think when you're designing for a specific group of people, you kind of can. You can, in the same way you put yourself through the, the lens, um, put yourself in the seat of a spike trying to optimize a draft of your cube and, and make sure that it stands up to that. Uh, you can also try and put it through the lens of, of the other players that you know. Sure, yeah. I, I didn't mean to say that you can't or shouldn't design with the inclinations and preferences of your playgroup in mind. I more mean that Obviously, there are some people that just like a card and are always going to play it, and might even specifically request if you're in your playgroup, like, hey, can you put this, my favorite card in your cube? And you might say yes or no, depending on what you want to do. What I more mean is the the sort of stuff that changes from a day-to-day basis, right? Or, you know, it depends on how the person's feeling that day. Like, there are, I, I guess my point is that there are so many factors that go into what a person will take in a given draft pick and how they'll build their deck. And some of those are not knowable, but somewhat... They follow this pattern, right? And the pattern is a player trying to make optimal decisions to win the game. And you can do a reasonable job somewhat predicting what a person following that metric would do in a given seat. And what you can't do is account for all of the other stuff that uh, is much harder to measure, much harder to predict, more out of your control, that lies in this territory between your subjective biases and your player's subjective biases. And to be clear, I think this territory is one of my favorite things about cube design because if my cube was only drafted by me and seven other me's, none of the decks that came out of that cube would be interesting to me at all because I know how I like to draft all the archetypes in my cube. I know the cards I prioritize. And if I were to clone myself seven times and do a draft, I'm maybe going to learn more about how the cube manifests my specific priorities and like whether or not I'm able to draft the archetypes in the way that I think they should be drafted. But what I don't learn is anything about how this cube relates to the outside world. And looking at what other players do when they're drafting a seat is way more interesting, like where those sort of disagreements are. But there is this through line between the vast majority of players and the vast majority of drafts that I think has to be an assumed through line of a game. And we're playing a game, right? Games have win conditions, they have goals, and what I was trying to get across in the previous episode was that I think it's important for every cube designer to assume that your players are going to try and win. They're going to play the game in good faith. Maybe that's a better way of saying it. They're there to play magic in good faith. They're not going to try to train wreck things or railroad a draft or, you know, hate out the player across the table because they're mad at them. And they might try and do that, but you can't design expecting those things because it does not lead to any kind of productive design discussion or decisions. Yeah, I think I'm mostly on the same page. I guess what I would still disagree a little bit is, is I don't think that is to the exclusion of thinking about other reasons that people do enjoy the game. So everybody wants to win. You know, nobody is purely any of the sort of psychographics that, that we've stolen from R&D. But you can also legitimately try and put yourself in the seat of somebody who likes to just cast big creatures or, you know, uh, really explore the way that it, cards interact and, and do something really mechanically unique in your deck. Like, I, I think that, yes, thinking about how spikes approach your cube, like, that's, to me, still number one as well but not to the exclusion of, of thinking about these other uh, motivations for playing the game. Do you have an example of a kind of cube design decision, like including a card or excluding a card, when you are thinking about a non-spike, like, oh, I'm going to put this here for the Timmies and Tammies? Like, is that something that's actually gone through your mind before when you're designing your cube? And can, do you have an example you can conjure? Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, Noyan Dar still hasn't been cut from my cube. Talk through that decision, though, to include Noy and Dar. Like, who is that catering to? I mean, I think that, like, again, we're all a little bit all of these. So it's it's for me to some degree, um, but especially that sort of aspect of here's a card that sort of sh- shouts at you, like, do a certain thing and you'll get this sort of fun, weird payoff and get to do something that's kind of unique. So the idea of including this card in the same environment that has a lot of, like, man lands and things like that just sort of lets you think about this sort of, like, weird build around that I think is very appealing. Um, and I know that for... 
even though that is a small aspect of what I enjoy about the game. I know that for other players, that is a much bigger proportion of what, what is appealing. So are you saying basically you include that card not because you think it is a strong card to play in your deck at the five slot in blue-white, but because you think it leads to weird interactions between cards and interesting game scenarios that some players are seeking? For sure, yeah. And and again, it's not just one thing. So I've also done my best to try and make that thing, which I know certain players find fun and I myself you know, depending on the day, also can find that fun. So I've definitely, you know, lowered the power level of my cube drastically in order to sort of let some of those kinds of interactions also, uh, you know, have some hope of being an optimal strategy as well. I actually kind of feel like it's maybe instructive to think about... I remember listening to Mark Rosewater's Drive to Work podcast, often mentioned on this show, and getting some more insight into how magic sets are made. And I was struck when I first heard that there are separate roles in Wizards of the Coast for people that design the cards and people that, quote-unquote, develop the cards. And what design is responsible for is coming up with the kinds of mechanics in the set, coming up with themes, creating identities for color pairs, like actually, you know, making up cards, right? Like, here's a card, it, you know, costs this much mana, it's got this creature type, it, you know, has these stats, and it has this effect. And that's what design does. And then development's role, which is, certainly connected and overlapping, is to put all of that into balance, right? Like, say, actually, this one really needs to cost four mana instead of three mana, and maybe this doesn't make the most sense in these colors and should be tweaked, or this thing needs to have one more toughness because of the type of removal in the environment and because of how we're trying to pay things off. Like, they're the ones that are doing this kind of, like, tweaking of the, the stats to really make it so the environment plays well when someone with, as a spike sits down to try and play. And... And I think part of that also is is not just, you know, getting everything in perfect balance, but also tuning some things up and down. So, like, deliberately tuning the, like, the set mechanics for any given set to be a little bit more powerful because they want the new splashy thing to also be the optimal thing. Yes, exactly. It is a question of we have these goals we've agreed on, these values, for this set. We want it to manifest this sort of feeling in the players. We want to highlight these themes and mechanics. And... Design is oftentimes like exploring new territory. They're they're laying the groundwork for what this might look like. And then development's job is to come in and make sure that all of those little knobs are turned to just the right values and calibrated so that when you actually play the game, the values that is, are, have already been agreed on are actually realized uh, for the end players. Mark has even talked about how when they are playing cards, like playtesting cards in design, they'll often try and design them all with a flat power level, right? Just make them all good. Like, don't try and have some that are designed as commons, so they're a little less powerful, and some that are designed as mythic rares that are crazy overpowered, because they really just want to play with all of the cards. And so to see what cards are actually fun to cast, fun to resolve, fun to play with. So the way the design is playing the cards is very different from the way that development is playing the cards. And to me, I think this... this dichotomy is a very instructive thing to apply to cube design as well. And what I'm trying to express is that your design of your cube, if we, if we relate it to Magic R&D's design department, that is the territory where I have absolutely no desire to tell anybody at all what they should or shouldn't do with their cube. It is entirely your decision what things you want to make fun, what, what you find fun about magic that you want to manifest in your environment, what themes you want to explore, what restrictions you want to have, like, that is the Wild West, and that's what's great about Cube. You can do whatever you want, and I honestly think almost any weighing into anything in that territory is, like, almost purely subjective. Like, if you like it, you don't like it, whatever, but it's hard to make any kind of feedback or observations about that stage that uh, is rooted in anything bigger than subjectivity. And then... I think you have to take those goals you have and then run them through this development process, this spiky lens, and say, here's what I want. Here's what I like about Magic. I want this deck to be good. I want this card to be powerful enough to be played. And then you have to run it through this environment of, all right, if I want that to happen, what do I have to do to my cube to make it so these things I have expressed in my design are actually manifested for the players? Because the players, when they play your cube, they're not going to play it like the designers do in Magic R&D. They're not going to be playing it just to see what's fun. They're going to be playing to try and win. And that is the, the the contract, the social contract of a game of Magic and of designing a cube. And so I guess that is the thing I want to express is I do think there is objectivity there. I think it is too... It's it's out of reach for us. Like, I do think there are, there are in theory, like, 
objectively the most powerful cards in any given cube, objectively a best strategy in any given cube. I don't think we have the tools to measure or articulate that, but I think it does exist. We are, and what we're trying to do as Magic players is approximate it, right, and, and approach it and, and begin to understand it. And that is what I mean by saying no matter what your goals are, if your queue is going to be played by human beings and they are playing the game in good faith, you have to run things through this lens of how do I actually balance everything to make that work? And the example of Noyandar, I think, is a good one. You said Noyandar is a fun card. I like this card. I think it's a cool effect. I want to include it in the cube. But you didn't just put Noyandar in your cube alongside a bunch of other strategies that are much stronger, much more resilient, much faster, much more consistent than Noyandar. You said, I want to play this card and others like it. That means I have to make other trade-offs in my design so that this actually does become viable. And, and, and that's the stage I think is important. Right. I mean, in other terms, we could just describe it as like writing versus editing, where you're sort of having this creative thing or, you know, even the terms that they use in in Wizards now, the, the R&D is kind of an outdated term. They talk about vision design versus play design. I think that's a good, great terminology, you know. On one hand, you're trying to figure out what is the vision for the environment you're trying to, to create. And then you actually do the editing. You sit down and play test it and figure out, are you actually uh, executing that vision? Right. I think it's true. And that's why I like listening to Drive to Work, to be honest. Like, I I like magic, but I, I think you and I share a, a lack of, like, celebrity or hero worship. Like, I don't really care what's going on behind the scenes at Wizards of the Coast because it's Wizards of the Coast, right? Like, it's just some company running their business. Like, I don't really care about that. What is interesting to me is all of the many years of trial and error and practice that has gone into managing a team that designs magic sets and... Honestly, if it, if it was a podcast about not magic, if it was a podcast about a game I didn't play or a podcast about how they design or make some other thing with a similar sort of tension between subjective artistic expression and objective balance and play design to make sure that when people actually play this, it actually still works as a game in addition to expressing these goals we want to express. I'd listen to that too, even if it was about some video game I don't play or something. But that's why I, I like that podcast. I think it's it's fascinating from a cube design perspective too. Oh yeah, I mean, Drive to Work has really had a bigger influence on how I think about cube more than probably anything else. A couple last points here. We mentioned that the highest powered vintage cubes we don't consider to be a spiky environment because they have necessarily very high power outliers the the moxin the power nine your cards like that your soul rings your channels are so much better than the other cards in the cube because you have a big cube and it's full of a wide band of cards including the most powerful ones that it leads to a higher variance in gameplay because some people just are able to turn one channel and some people aren't and so as a spiky player who cares about optimizing your gameplay and getting good at the game and learning how to play effectively you would not want to lose that kind of variance as much as you would in a very powerful environment. And the one thing I wanted yeah, to clarify... Yeah, I mean, I think I, that, I, that that terminology is still a little bit problematic, though. Like, you can be a spike about even a very high-variance format. And, and while right, there's I'm, maybe I'm a I'm talking a about from a design trend. perspective. I'm not talking about from a player perspective. And, and that's the line we keep crossing. That's the wire that keeps getting crossed here, is that being a spike is a type of player, it is not a type of cube designer. And so... So you're, you're saying say spike, that the vintage-powered cube is just a cube that less appeals to spiky players? I meant it is. it does not manifest what I think we are trying to describe as a spike design mentality. Sure. So spike... Well, I mean, even that, I don't know if I would agree with. Like, they have specific goals. They want to encourage a certain kind of gameplay. And that kind of gameplay is high variance. It's doing big, splashy stuff. It's comboing off on turn one. And, and they do accomplish those goals. My point is that players that care about, and, and I know you agree with me on this, which is why it's frustrating that we, I can't put this into words that make sense to you, because I know it's not making sense to more people that are listening too. Players that care about playing Magic and, and maximizing the sort of little edges and being rewarded for their slightly better evaluation of the board state and slightly better uh, you know, card evaluation in the draft are the spikes. You know, that, that's, that's, that's all spike mentality we just described. And those people, as you, as you mentioned in the previous podcast, might be drawn to a more low-powered environment like Kamigawa Limited or something because there, you know, it, it doesn't take skill to, I mean, it takes a little bit of familiarity with magic, but for the most part, it, it doesn't take a skilled player to say, I'm going to take this Black Lotus, pack one, pick one, right? That's just 
a card that every player knows is kind of broken and you just take it if you see it and you're very grateful that you got it in your draft. That's one decision that was taken away from you that it didn't matter what kind of player you were, if you're a spike, if you're not a spike, you just everyone took the Black Lotus. And every time you take a decision away in that way, uh, I think you make the environment an environment that less manifests the goals of spiky players. Now, obviously, spiky players can spike any environment. We established that. What I'm What I'm trying to say is that there is no such established thing as a spiky cube designer. What I'm proposing is that if you are trying to design a spiky environment, a wide power level band would not be something that you would embrace. I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> I don't know how we ended up with this. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't intend for this episode to be one where I propose things and you either bless them or shoot them down, but I guess we ended up there somehow. Yeah, but, I mean, I think, I think your description makes sense to me. At a certain point, I just wonder, well, you know, if this term is becoming problematic, it's maybe easier if we just set that term aside and instead just spell out what we're trying to describe, which I think you did, clearly. Right, and I think that the only reason it's worth talking about this at all is because I notice a lot of friction in conversations in the cube community between people that are, in the terms we were just talking about, coming from the, like, vision design perspective and that butting up against the play design perspective and there being a disconnect and a miscommunication where one player says something about a card they like or asks a question about what cuts to make or a card evaluation and they're asking it in a particular context that is not received by the person answering who then answers in this other context and the only word we have to describe this we don't have terms like you know the development of your cube or the play design of your cube we don't have those words, and what people say is spike. They say, like, looking at your cube from the perspective of a spike, these cards seem overpowered, and I'm going to take them over everything, and I think it's going to make me, you know, favored to win. And that's the word people end up using, which is why I think we're spending any time to dissect it and take it apart. I kind of like that other idea, though. Like, if you're starting a brand new cube saying, I'm in vision design, I'm just trying to, you know, get together cards I like, see if there's patterns and the kinds of things that, that interest me. And then later I'll go into, you know, my play design and actually do some play testing and try and balance it and, and see if we can accomplish those goals. I think those are just useful terms, maybe. For sure. I, I wish we had the, the reach in the community to say <laughs> everybody start using these terms and it would just be better. But, but we don't. And the reality is that I think people still do use the word spike in the ways that we're describing and it becomes problematic. Anyway, the only thing I wanted to clarify like that led us down this whole other fucking rabbit hole is that we mentioned that high-powered cube does not, on its face, cater to things that supposedly spiky players would enjoy. So obviously it can be spiked. I don't need to be well actually. But we kind of gave the sort of counterpoint of Kamigawa Limited. And we, I also wanted to mention that what we didn't say is that Kamigawa Limited doesn't, doesn't also inherently cater to the things that a spike would, would care about. I think the thing that is correlated is the width of the power level band. And there are limitations to how wide the power level band can be if you want to play specific cards. Like, if you want to play power, Moxin, Black Lotus, Time Walk, that kind of stuff, you are going to have a much wider power level band than if you want to eschew those cards because they are much more powerful than the vast majority of cards ever printed in Magic's history. So you are locking yourself in to have a pretty wide power level band if you're playing those cards. But you could play at a much lower power level and still have an equally wide power level band just between, you know, the worst card in your cube or the worst 10 cards, which are a certain power level, and then, you know, a mid-rangey, like, fine card. But it could be way better than the other cards in your cube, and you could still have a wide power level band. So it's not that any specific power level is conducive to this kind of decision matters, low-variance gameplay. It's just that power level band width, which... Uh, certainly in the middle of that sort of range, there's a lot more opportunity for you to control the width of that power level band because you have way more cards at your disposal at slightly different power levels to kind of fill it out however you want. But really, it's just the width that matters for the idea that we're trying to get at. Yeah, and it's it's that's obviously like a, a simplification because the reality is too complicated, but it, it's not strictly just a, a band. It's more of, you know, a, a bell curve. And even in Kamigawa Limited... You would say, well, there's some rares that are much more powerful, but because they appear in such lower frequency, they, they don't sort of have the same effect on the, that band. Does that make any sense? Well, yeah, but it doesn't have to be a bell curve. You're designing your cube. It can be any kind of power level distribution you want. Totally. Some kind of shape. It's not always strictly, you know, a rectangle. Right. I'm done talking about this. This is f annoying. I'm, just, I'm annoyed. <laughs> so look, two last things. 
Uh, it's Seuss Man, not Dr. Seuss. I'm sorry, Seuss Man. I screwed up your name. Shout out to Seuss Man. And then uh, sometimes I edit the podcast. I, I always edit the podcast. Sometimes while I am editing the podcast, I'm kicking myself because I didn't realize something in the moment and looking, listening back to the episode, I realized it immediately. At the end of our conversation last week, talking about multiplayer cubes, I was saying that I thought maybe the one idea from Commander in spirit that could or should be brought into like a, a multiplayer draft experience outside of Commander was the idea have, of having consistent access to a card. And I said on, on the episode, I was like, I can't imagine an elegant way to give somebody access to a card in every game uh, outside of having a commander with all the extra baggage that comes with that. And Anthony, that's just conspiracies. Why didn't I remember conspiracies, which are literally oh, just yeah. that, right? That's all. That's what they are. And, and conspiracies, I mean, I think they are very, very powerful in a lot of environments because they give you access to this effect all the time. But I think they're a very elegant solution to a very similar idea of a commander. It's like, here's a card, you get it every game, and there's no other baggage associated with it, right? And in the case of conspiracies, they're all like emblem-style things that can't be interacted with, and you could tweak that, obviously. But conspiracies is, is what I should have mentioned last week, and I didn't. Do you like playing with conspiracies, though? No, I don't, but I, but I also don't play multiplayer. I think they make a lot more sense in multiplayer. And sure. I mean... Do I like playing with them? The answer, I mean, yes, I do. I mean, I, I like, you know, double stroking my like cool removal spell or having building a sovereign's realm deck or a uh, what's the other one that's to- world knit deck. Like, yeah, it's fun once. It's it's fun the first time you do it, but um, I I would never include them in my own cube because I think they would be because you have access to them all the time. I think it leads to very repetitive gameplay. But that really highlights one of the differences we talked about in multiplayer environments and single player environments where in multiplayer environments, like you're not going to play nine games. You're going to play two, maybe three. And so you're not going to be like the same game over and over again, every single time. It's always this dumb conspiracy. And like the deck just keeps doing exactly the same thing. So I think having access to those cards reliably actually does make sense for multiplayer environment because you want your deck to do its thing. And one of the ways to guarantee that is giving you your build around in the command zone or in the exile zone or whatever. Honestly, I, I wonder if, uh, if we revisit your multiplayer cube, if we should think about conspiracies because even though they're very powerful, I do also think that they make more sense in a multiplayer environment because that power level is offset by the politics of the table and the fact that if you are off to a big lead, you have three opponents to take down instead of just one. Yeah, I mean, the the structure, the structural comparison makes perfect sense to me. I think there is a little bit of a difference just in that usually your commander is like the biggest build around ever. It's like, you here's a commander that does some really specific thing and you get to build a, your whole deck around that. And just the way that most of the conspiracies, at least the one I'm, ones I'm aware of, are designed, they're a little bit more open-ended. So it's it's not quite as much a build around in the same way. Um, I guess with the exception of some of the ones like Hymn of Rebirth, I think that's the one that just lets you, you, you can only cast creatures, but you get a discount on them and uh, World Knit and Sovereign's Realm. Like these are more like, they feel like more draft arounds than build arounds. Like they don't actually change the your game plan that much uh, once you're actually pl- playing the games. Is that fair to say? Yeah, the one you're referencing is Hymn of the Wilds. The Hymn of Rebirth is apparently also a magic card I just discovered, some weird one from Ice Age I've never seen before. But uh, Hymn of the Wilds is the one you're talking about. Yeah, I I don't actually love the ones that are like huge draft stipulation cards especially the ones that let you completely ignore color identity and just draft whatever you want yeah. I, I don't think those are particularly healthy to an environment with any kind of replay value but yeah there's no reason that that card type couldn't be more like the kind of builder rounds we described right right uh, it could be like you know it gives you an effect that lets you sacrifice creatures for value or like lets you build around plus one plus one counters or spells matter. Like these are just not really the conspiracies that currently exist that Wizards has designed, but they certainly could be created. So many of them have the hidden agenda ones, which are weird. They're not built around so much as they are. They just make a card in your deck of your choice, do something a little better, which the hidden agenda ones make a lot more sense in a non-sickleton environment where you can choose a card that you have two or three of right, you draft yeah. of a common and then like makes your whole deck change differently. I guess one of the best examples I can think of is like uh, like weight advantage is a really good example of a commander style built around. Oh, that's conspiracy. a great point. Yeah. That's just the one that gives you the, uh, you know, your butt matters instead of your front, <laughs> the, uh, the, the butts, the big butts, big butts conspiracy creatures deal damage equal to their toughness rather than their, rather than their power. Anyway, I just, I was editing the podcast and I was like, damn it, Andy, that's just conspiracies. The thing you just described <laughs> is conspiracies. 
And I can imagine a world where these were designed a little differently to be more catered to like singleton cube environments and some custom conspiracies that could make for really interesting multiplayer build arounds that would allow you to have a build around, have reliable access to it, and it would cause some more power delta stuff, but I think that would be offset by the politics of multiplayer play and could could be very interesting. What a week to talk about conspiracies. Mmm, mmm, Anthony. Oh, yeah, it's been... I'm just going to go ahead and put an explicit tag on this episode right now. This has been, <laughs> this has been a real fuck of a week. <laughs> I can't believe Monday was Monday. Do you remember what Monday felt like? That feels like it was a month ago. I felt the same. Okay, well, we went down the rabbit hole again, and Anthony, I'm going to say that we should not try and fit the call time mechanics in this show. Let's save that for next show, and we can really focus on them, because I have some thoughts about those mechanics. I really want to dive into... I really want to dive into like a high-level game design perspective on those mechanics and, and how they work. So let's give them the time they deserve. But to wrap up this week, in summary, I, I think we really got to something productive this week. This distinction that we were trying to portray as a distinction between spiky cube design and non-spiky cube design last week really is the distinction that research and development at Wizards has between vision design and play designer development. And that's the distinction I think is important to kind of encapsulate. I, I'm sure you have this experience, Anthony. When I'm designing cubes, I have exactly that two-part process where the first thing I do is say, I want to build a new cube. And you know, a couple weeks ago, I got interested in building a combat trick cube. Again, from these conversations with, with Seuss Man on the Discord, we were talking about other smaller kinds of cubes that could work. And we were talking about, is there some way to make infect work in a cube? And if you had infect, you'd have all these combat tricks. And where does that kind of lead? And so when I made this combat trick cube, I just did some scryfall searches for all the combat tricks to find the ones that were interesting and, you know, seemed cool to me, all of the cards that cared about power in some way, all the cards that cared about being targeted in some way, and what kind of overlaps there were there. I just threw them in a big pile, a big list. And then with the context of all those cards together, like with that sort of vision design done, you can then go through and say, okay, well, this card does conform with all the things that I am seeking. Like it does care about power. It does have heroic written on it or whatever, but it actually isn't powerful enough. It, it, it doesn't like hang with these other cards that I've like earmarked as tent poles of what I think this cube is going to be, this environment's going to play like. So even though it fits thematically, it doesn't actually fit power level wise and kind of weeded that out. And then I was like, all right, now what other cards that are not thematic, that are just removal spells or card selection or counter magic, stuff that I consider to be kind of a core part of the vast majority of the environments that I'll ever design. I was like, what... How does it make sense to kind of tweak and tune those more bread and butter effects given the context laid out by these tentpole cards I sort of put together in my, my quote-unquote vision design? And it is really two different lenses. And I, I would not want to apply that card evaluation play design lens when I'm just scrolling through Scryfall because you're looking at things out of context. You're just saying, here's a card. Is it good enough? And it's like, well, I don't know if it's good enough. I don't know what this environment's going to be like yet. So let's just put it in the pile because it fits the themes we're talking about and then work on evaluating it for power level reasons and balancing it and turning all those knobs in a later separate step. So if we can, maybe it's just time to write an article, Anthony. Uh, get, get your keyboard warmed up because I think we may need to write an article about thinking about Cube in this sort of two-process way. And if we give them good sticky names, maybe we can get people to stop saying spiky Cube design. That'd be great. Is this what you do too when you design a new Cube? Oh, absolutely. The The first phase, I've always just thought of, like, the the regular expression phase, where I'm just trying to figure out, well, how do I dig through all these magic cards for the things that fit mechanically with the kind of thing that I'm trying to get to? And that's where you definitely get into that risky space where your editor is kind of, your, your internal editor is distracting you by thinking too hard about it. And you just need to, you know, try and find that Balmer peak. It's true. That was part of what was so interesting about the, so the Degenerate Microcube was the first cube I built that was really far deviated from a typical vintage legacy cube that a lot of players have. And so a lot of times when I did a first pass on a type of card, I did have that sort of little voice in the back of my head that was like, yeah, well, that card's not good enough, though, because, you know, we're playing Flash here and we're playing, uh, you know, Soul Ring and, and Channel, so we can't possibly play this card. And once I had kind of accepted that this environment was 
dramatically different than anything I'd ever experienced, and a lot of my preconceived notions were wrong, that's when I found some of the cards that ended up being the best cards in the cube. Like, Aether Spellbomb is just kind of messed up in that environment. So is Conjurer's Bobble. And these are cubes, that are, these are cards, rather, that you would look at and never assume in a vacuum would be playable alongside Channel and Misha's Workshop. But it turns out they are. And that same difference in expectations and reality, I think, is true for every cube and for every cube designer. It's just a, a matter of, of magnitude. And so, so yeah, we got to name these two phases and... Maybe we should inherit the terminology from Magic R&D. Maybe we should kind of come up with our own. But I think that if we could, if more people contextualize discussions on subreddits, Twitter, you know, cube discords with saying like, I'm doing vision design right now. I'm trying to find things to fit this theme and, you know, let people suggest ideas to fit that theme without somebody jumping in and saying like, well, that card's not good enough. Because it's like, hold on. Hold on, friend. We're, we're, we're not there yet. We're just, uh, we're just doing this step yet. And then also clarifying when they're asking for feedback, do they want feedback on the balance of the environment, on the, the play design, on how this thing actually is going to come together when players are playing in good faith? Or do they want feedback on whether or not the themes are visible enough or the appealing thing to do? Like, you know, are, are the themes present but not the strongest thing and therefore you're not people players are not, not likely to draft them like there's there's this weird tension between these two different approaches that i think is, is valuable to distinguish yeah i'm happy to steal terms from r d all right we'll do call time mechanics next week then i have a lot of thoughts about those and i think that will be a good show so tune in next week and you know what subscribe to the show. If you're out there, I look at the podcast analytics and I've had a bunch of podcasts over the years. And I got to say, Anthony, this show, we have, we have a nice number of listeners. I love them all dearly. They're all our beautiful, beautiful children. But a lot of you are just listening in the browser every week, I think. And maybe you don't listen to podcasts very regularly because we have a lot of like browser-based listeners. Go out there and get a, get a, get a podcast app. There's a Pocket Cast is a great one. Uh, Overcast is one people really like. Get yourself a podcast app. You can subscribe to this show and any other show that interests you. And you can always just go to that app and see what the latest shows are for you to listen to. You don't have to remember to check the website every week or see it on the Reddit. So subscribe to the but show. They want to they want to visit the beautiful website you designed. You can also visit the beautiful website. I'll I'll accept that too. But uh, I just want to make sure that. I'm trying to help people, Anthony. You know, podcasts are great. Podcast apps are great. I, I live and die by them because I love listening to podcasts. So get yourself one that works for you. And uh, I think it will make your podcast listening experience all the better. We are done, Anthony. I'm calling it. This has been Lucky Paper Radio. Subscribe to the show. Get yourself a podcast app. Have a nice day. <laughs> all of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. Thank you, DJ James Nasty, for the music. Thank you to everyone for listening, and thank you, Anthony, for talking about magic with me while the world burns around us. It's tough. It's a tough one this week, but uh, maybe next maybe next week will be better. If next week's not better, something must have gone real bad. <laughs>